Okay, back for one final week. Sorry, you guys, you get your pastor back next Sunday. So let's have one last time in Philippians chapter 3. We've done this little mini-series in Philippians chapter 3. Maybe as you're turning there, Philippians 3, and we're going to be reading the whole text, verses 7 through 12, but concentrating just on verse 12 to kind of help us think about where I want, to f- want us to finish out today. Maybe you can identify with me. Most dads or moms kind of like to have remembrances of their children when they were little, and so they keep around some little memorabilia to remind them of the child's early years. And uh, I was the youngest of three boys in my family, and uh, mom had retained something I gave her for Mother's Day, I think when I was in second grade. Uh, I had made a handprint in clay, and it was fired, you know, the teacher fired it, and it had my name, I kind of etched my little initials in it, and uh, it became her spoon rest uh, on the kitchen stove for a number of years, this ugly little yellow chubby handprint, and I remember my brothers walking in once in a while in the kitchen and looking and kind of a little disdain, yeah, she, she always treats him like her favorite, you know, and he's the little one that can get away with everything, and You know, just little comments like that. I can't imagine siblings ever thinking that way about one another. Of course not. Um, But for years, that spoon rest was her little reminder. And, of course, she had something of my middle brother and a number of things of my oldest brother because he was firstborn, and they can do no wrong, you know. You know where I am in the pecking order of the family. But you think about that little impress, that reminder, that spoon rest on the kitchen stove, and it kind of helps us to remember what, The Apostle Paul is saying here in Philippians 3 that there is going to be something about your life that makes that impress of God to this world. And more importantly, that impress of God back to him. What is that imprint that your life makes? What do you manifest? What do you show forth uh, by your life? And the Apostle Paul, as we've seen here in this passage, is telling us that the free expression of Jesus suffering, dying, and rising is really what God wants. God's looking for that impress, that imprint to go out into the world all around where your life, where my life intersect others' lives and to make that beautiful imprint of a suffering, dying, and rising Savior. Because that, to the world's eyes, to the world that we live in, is the converse of what they would say is freedom. It's the opposite of what they would say is worth living for. But our God says, no, this is the most valuable thing. I sent my son to do this on your behalf, and not only to do it on your behalf, but to become your model, your example, so that you can follow in his footsteps. Well, that's really earth-shattering, and that's what God wants to do with his people. And that's why the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers at Philippi They're kind of struggling because they're not taking those words very clearly. Their lives are kind of digressing back to, I'll make my own imprint. I'm going to define freedom my way. And Paul is reminding them, wait a minute. Jesus died on behalf of you so you could live in this kind of freedom, suffering, dying, and then rising with the Father. And so we're going to read that passage again, Philippians 3, verse 7 through 12, and then we'll finish out with verse 12. Reading the New American Standard, Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
And more than that, I, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ, so that I might be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or from law-keeping, but rather a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Hey, pray with me. Let's just ask God to help us as we finish out here today. Lord, we pray that um, the words that I speak, the words that my brothers and sisters listen to today, these would be words from you and that you would work that wonderful Holy Spirit work of illumination and understanding and then transformation in our lives. Help us, we pray, in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Hopefully this passage is helping us to uh, think through this imprint. So let's just look right at verse uh, 12. He's saying, I press on so as to get the prize that's already been secured. <laughs> I'm pressing forward to the prize. Usually uh, you're pressing forward because you want to obtain that prize. But the unique thing here is Christ has already obtained the prize. We don't then grab that prize as ours. Rather, we live in the fact that it's already attained by Christ. We saw last week that for the Christian believer, we're promised safe passage by Jesus. We will get to the end, Paul is telling us. In verse 11, we will reach our final day of victory as Jesus returns. He comes back a second time to earth in that glorious remake of this earth and of everything else, the heavens. Not that I have already completed it, though. Remember we saw in verse uh, 11 as I was helping us see the meaning of that word. Not that it's already been completed as if I have obtained it and that I have become perfect. Paul says, no, that attitude of heart and mind describes the posture. It describes the stance of our daily living. So what dominates my head, what dominates my actions, how I interact with people, how I think about people, how I respond to circumstances and situations as a believer now, I am doing that with this mindset of anticipation. Okay, so I'm, I'm living right now, but there's this anticipation that's always in the backdrop of my life. And that anticipation, of course, is this reality, is that God says, I'm already with him in the heavenly places. We saw that in, as we jumped to verse 20 of Philippians 3, where he says, you're already citizens of God's kingdom. You have the citizenship. You're not an American citizen first and then a child of God. No, instead, before the foundation of the world, Jesus already 
was going to death for you. And in time, he came 2,000 years ago and did that in order to secure the purchase, the buyback of our sin so that we could become citizens of heaven before we were ever born. <laughs> Again, this is God's timing, not our timing. But in God's timing, he said, we're citizens already. He sees us as it's done. You're mine. We are enjoying pure fellowship through the blood and righteousness of my son Jesus, through the uh, daily ministry of my Holy Spirit. We're enjoying citizenship already in heaven. So, verse 11 says that word attain to the resurrection of the dead. And Paul, in the Greek word we saw last week, he's not saying... He's not saying that somehow I have worked hard and it's mine, it's my prize. No, instead, he's saying Christ already obtained it and we are just waiting for that final installment, that final step of receiving what Jesus did for us. And so we're living every day in that final step, just longing for, looking for, and waiting for what Jesus obtained for us. So this same resurrection power that was given to Jesus when he was accepted by the Father, Paul says, we already have that resurrection power. So that's what we're going to be operating on day by day, not our own power. Now, you and I, that sounds great in theory, but you and I in practice often digress to that self-made power that we're so used to. But for you and I, he wants us to come down from, like this word attain says, come down from the land, come down from the city that we've been part of, the city of man, and come down to the ocean of the city of God. Through Jesus Christ, he says, come down and, and get ready, get your feet touching the edge of the water. You're at the shore, smell the spray, feel the refreshment of God's ocean of love, and be right there poised for the final dive when he takes you from this body and receives you completely. So stay right there at the edge. Get your toes in. Start feeling it. It's good. It's beautiful. Watch the vastness. Watch the immensity of this ocean of his love because this is your reality. This is your citizenship, this ocean, not the city of man back there. So keep coming away from the city of man and watching this beautiful, beautiful ocean of love. Well, we look back some of the times at city of man, and there are some fond memories. There are some nice people, some lovely family members that we've enjoyed. Those are all good, and we call them good. But we also recognize that God says it's all broken. It might be good, but it's not my perfection. And they're broken, and you were a part of that brokenness. Now I want you to realize that all things are being made new in Jesus Christ, and that ocean of love is your eternity, is your place. This is that resurrection glory that is yours already. So now in this second phrase of verse 12, we go on and he says, not only am I, am I reckoning that I've already attained and obtained it, but secondly, I press on. I press on so that I will lay hold of that which Christ already has laid hold of. I'm actively calling out that goal, that ocean in front of me, 
I'm calling out that goal to God. I'm saying, Lord, help me today. Help me to stay actively engaged with all that is mine that is now in union with Jesus Christ. I'm united with Jesus Christ. I don't live in this world anymore. I'm dead to that. I live in Christ Jesus who loved me and gave himself up for me. So first thing is I'm calling out as I press on. I'm admitting and acknowledging this is my reality now, Lord. So to press on in the, in the original Greek first begins with this calling out. And then I'm adding my little part of the definition here. Put out the welcome mat of your life to God. It's, so I use my words and I say, Lord, by faith, I want you to help me live in this reality. It's out in front of me, this ocean of your love. Right now, I want to be experiencing it. But God, I also, by pressing on, I'm going to put the welcome mat of my heart out to your Holy Spirit. I'm not going to say, Holy Spirit, help me, and then close up. It means I'm going to read the word. I'm going to be around godly people. I'm going to fill my mind with godly messages, not with the tripe of this world. And by doing that, I'm making myself available for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Isn't that what we saw earlier that Jesus promised when, when he would leave? He wouldn't leave us as orphans. We're not, we're not parentless. We're not just off trying to make our own existence. He says, I'll give you my spirit. And it's he who will always guide you into my truth. He'll be your comforter. He'll, he'll be the one who comes alongside and just keeps you tight with the Father. But you and I have to put the welcome mat out for the Spirit of God daily to be working. So pressing on means I'm opening myself up to the work of the Spirit. And then as I'm putting that welcome mat out, I'm just going to put it in the vernacular. It requires our foot to be on the pedal, and it requires that pedal to be down on the metal. Okay? we got to be pushing full bore straight ahead. Jesus, I want what you want. And I know that that might mean some trials and that might mean some stuff that's not going to feel good. But Jesus, I want what you want. This is why you died and hung on the cross and cried out to the Father, forgive Ted, he knows not what he's doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit for on behalf of my brothers and sisters, it is finished. You see, I want what Jesus did. I want the full reality of that right now, day by day. I'm saying to myself as I'm foot on the pedal and I'm blasting away toward enjoying that full reality, I'm saying I'm not going to keep glancing in the rearview mirror. I'm, I'm saying to myself what's back there on land is shadow lies. What's here on earth is a shadow of something to come, but they're lies because the world interprets them through their sinful reality. And I learned how to interpret what God meant for good, but the world taught me for evil. So even good relationships, even family and loved ones and education and jobs and, and hard work that we're to enjoy by the sweat of our brow, the world lied to me. And it reinterpreted all those things that God intended back in that shadow of lies, that shadow land of, of wrong interpretation. And we bought it. To some degree or another, each one of us bought it. And God is in the process, we know, of transforming a lot of those lies that we bought. So why keep looking in the rearview mirror? What's going on here 
is that you and I are learning more and more as we're looking at that ocean of love, that ocean of freedom, that the glances in the rearview mirror are worthless. So they're less and less, aren't they? Because there's so much beauty out here, I don't want to waste my time looking at, the, at what's back there. So that's this picture that the Apostle Paul is saying, I am pressing on so that I can lay hold of that which already Jesus has laid hold of for me. Okay, now we basically exegeted this passage to death, not really, but I've kind of pushed this thing for three weeks, okay? So we've looked at it theologically and hopefully practically. Now I want us to slowly start moving toward taking the Apostle Paul's teaching and moving it into process. I want us to camp on a process, an action. How do we keep the pedal to the metal? How do we do that? Well, obviously, we first start with proposition, which we've been doing. God gives the proposition. He gives us truth. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. But now you and I have to make that actually work in our given daily living. And each one of us is different, so I can't sit here and be in your personal life and be your life coach and try and pastor you through being your life coach and helping you figure out in your daily press of life how you've got to suffer, die, and rise with him. But hopefully we can just stop and think about some ways and then your mind can be doing more of that kind of thinking that we need to do. We are on land. We're not yet out there. We're continually subject to the brokenness of this land. Christian theologians call this tension that you and I are living in the already and the not yet. You've probably heard that before. We're living in the already. We're already seated with him in the heavenly places, but we're not yet in body form, in flesh, there in that resurrected glorious body. So we have this little tension that's going on. We want to live in that reality, but the rear view mirror tells us the reality is still here. Our bodies are slowly decaying. A lot of you are younger. In fact, I think I'm probably the oldest one here. And uh, you know, I can tell you that gravity has had its pull on me. And what I used to have in a little bit of physique and some muscle, has uh, gravity has been working on me. And... Um, my mind is not quite as quick and sharp as it used to be. And all those things that God says are part of the fall are as a result of what Satan and you and I followed in the lie. It's all going to come to naught one day, this flesh, but not our spirit, not who we already are in heaven with him. And so we do have to slough off the flesh. It's, it's going to go one day. So while we're still here in these bodies, we want to keep our eyes on the prize. Now, I want us to think about that J-curve that we talked about last week. That J-curve of suffering, meaning with Jesus, as Jesus did, he went low rather than putting his chin up. He decided not to defend himself. Secondly, and, 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 and as we as we do that, as, as we go low, as we fellowship in Christ's sufferings that he endured on the cross, we're weakening the power of evil in us, okay? We're taking away the sinews and strength of evil one by one, which is great. That's what we want. Secondly, as, as we are dying with Jesus, on that J curve we talked about, it's a, it's a curve, J meaning Jesus, and he's, he's here in life, 
and he takes on suffering. He's moving down. He's going into finally that death, subjecting himself to death on the cross. I'm dying to myself. I'm not demanding my personal rights. I'm not expecting that all my hopes and, and pleasures and needs in life are going to be met. They're not as important right now. And then finally, I'm rising, and I'm rising above and beyond because God is saying, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what I want. And now enjoy fellowship with me. Let's enjoy the rich riches that I wanted for you as I called you to suffer and die. We're letting him raise us up to his joy, that glad fellowship that Jesus and the Father now are presently experiencing. He tells us that we can enjoy that fellowship with him. So you and I don't create our own little substitute, our little self-resurrection, where we say, well, yeah, I've done well, and you know, if you do well, you're going to get your payback. Something good will happen to you. That's not resurrection. That's the world's substitute, isn't it? So we are enjoying something greater than we could imagine with this J-curve. Well, I mentioned this book. I brought a copy of it. Um, it's a helpful little book. Uh, in fact, one of our friends here already got the book and has read it and been able to find some really neat help with it. Um, so Paul Miller is a brother in Christ in the uh, northern Philadelphia area, has written this book. He's uh, part of an organization uh, that helps Christians get hold of these sorts of practical things in life. And um, in this book called The J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life, uh, he is kind of breaking down this passage of Philippians 3 in all the chapters of his book. And he's stating in the book that our lives, now as lovers of Christ, our lives are going to take on the shape of Jesus' life. We're going to enjoy real freedom as we welcome him and become a mirror reflection of Jesus to our world around us. So following that J-curve allows our life to make that imprint of Jesus for the watching unbelievers in our world. It gives us a place then to speak the good news of Christ to the world. We're not just words, but there's life-giving picture of Jesus suffering, dying, and rising that our lives are making I want to read one example for us uh, from the book that, that he makes that's just kind of, it just resonated with me, probably because I'm married, I've been married 41 years, and marriage is one of those opportunities God gives us of suffering, dying, and rising, just in those little quiet interpersonal relationships, those ways in which we have to make two people becoming one flesh, we've got to make it work. It's usually people want to say, Two, uh, one plus one equals two. But God says in marriage, one plus one equals one. A whole, a beautiful, new, integrated whole. How do you do that with another person? And so here's just an example of that. And what I want us to do with this is just kind of learn some things from what he is, his narrative. And then let's just think about situations that each one of us has. Maybe you're still in your parents' home and you're under your parents' authority. And there are lots of things that you would rather be doing than doing what your parent is asking you to do. And in your thinking, you go, it doesn't make sense why I have to do this. And God is saying, okay, what's that look like in a J-curve for you? 
Maybe you're an older person and you have adult children and your adult children aren't doing the things in life that you wish they would be doing. And how do you get them to do it without nagging? How do you storm the gates of heaven through prayer and be content when you see things not being bought into by your older children? Another opportunity for the J-curve, amen? We've got all of these ways. So I want us to just think as I read this example here, uh, this is Paul Miller speaking. Um, he actually, he's, he's in his late 60s now. Uh, so he and his wife have been married almost 50 years. And uh, this happened a number of years back. So he says, I was beginning to ask myself, what does this substitutionary love that participates in Christ's dying and rising, what does it look like? My wife, Jill, was under some enormous pressure. Our six kids, aged three to 16, were constantly crabbing, fighting, and, and whining at one another and with us. We were caring for our disabled daughter Kim, our fourth child, and all of this, especially her special needs, had depleted our savings. We were living from paycheck to paycheck. My wife Jill did all of her gift buying for the kids at thrift stores, putting the best face on it by packing their presents in boxes from some of the brand name stores. But our kids had figured out what she was doing and started sniffing the stale smelling presents when they opened the boxes. And Kim, at the same time, was being dismissed from the school that she was at because they didn't think that she could learn from them. Everything was tumbling in. Every area of life became extraordinarily difficult. And Jill, my wife, felt the brunt of it. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know how to love her. So I prayed that God would allow me to experience what she was experiencing. And I wrote this prayer in my journal back in January of 1991. Father, how do I love her? How do I give myself up for her? How do I die for her? Well, when I prayed this prayer, I wasn't sure what it looked like to give myself up for her. Over the next few years, God began to show me what that looked like in everyday moments. So here's one glimpse. We had moved to the edge of Philadelphia's northern suburbs in 1993 to get some better schooling for our daughter Kim with special needs. We had a place that allowed Jill to fulfill her own childhood dream. She, my wife, wanted to have farm animals and she had grown up in the streets of Center City, Philly with a concrete backyard. She had longed for some green acres and we had four pygmy goats and one big sheep and his name was Ed. In the winter of 1995, our local weather forecasters began predicting the storm of the century. A couple of days before that storm, my wife Jill began worrying about her animals in their little wooden shelters. And since Ed, our sheep, had a six inch deep coat of wool, I wasn't too concerned, but I called a lo local sheep farmer and asked if the animals would be okay. He said yes, as, as long as they had little shelters. I shared this with Jill and it seemed to calm her. So on Saturday evening, when we already had a foot of snow on the ground, Jill began to get nervous again as the snow kept pelting. We knew the goats were savvy and they would get into their sheds, but Ed wasn't the sharpest tack in the box. I went to bed at about 10 p.m. and was drifting off to sleep when I heard Jill's voice from the next room. Paul, would you go check on the sheep? I'm concerned about Ed. 
As I lay there, I plotted my response. I'd remind her of what the farmer had said, and then I'd explain the insulating value of snow, not to mention Ed's thick coat. Of course, logical in my eyes, but I knew Jill well enough to realize that my logic wasn't enough for her. It would not convince her. She'd just go out into the blizzard by herself, which would just get me more irritated at her. Then I remembered how the Apostle Paul had reenacted the gospel. I thought, okay, this isn't complicated. I can substitute my warmth for her worry. And the problem wasn't Ed, the sheep, but it was Jill's anxiety. So I crawled out of bed, I put on my boots and jacket, and I checked on Ed. He was fine. So Jill now was fine too. Well, in the morning we trudged out together into a winter wonderland of snow to check on the animals, but especially Ed. And we called his name and we made a little poem. Where's Ed? Is Ed dead? Will he come out of his bed? <laughs> Finally, one of the lumps out in the field began to move and out popped Ed. He was fine. So in this small act of dying, I loved my wife differently. I, I realized that in Colossians and in Philemon and elsewhere, Paul had been reenacting the gospel for his hearers. It was Jesus' death for us. And the word for means the weight of our sins comes on Jesus. So just as Jesus substitutes himself for us, we substitute the pieces of our lives for others. So now I understood how Paul could fill up, Colossians 1.24, how, how, how Paul could fill up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Jesus' death was once for all. His death for Jill, my wife, was finished, but mine was ongoing for my wife. I could substitute myself for the pieces of her life, like checking on Ed the sheep. So I had a mini death and Jill could live. Seeing this pattern of substitutionary love reoriented my vision of what it was to be a Christian. So here's the thing. When we understand that substitution is the heart of love, we see life through a different lens, and we realize that all of life is love, love 24-7. Great example of this seeming simple thing come on honey can't you hear my words i've already checked this out the farmer says the sheep man says no problem the, the, the sheep will live through all this doesn't satisfy her it's not making her content so doesn't seem logical to me but isn't that what jesus suffering and death are all about not logical not logical at all that one who is perfect who's never sinned would say oh no problem i'll take the penalty for your sin world I'll put it on my shoulders for you. It doesn't seem logical. And this is our opportunity, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what that imprint of Jesus Christ to the world is all about. God gives us daily opportunities to have these mini J-curve experiences so that the beauty and wonder of his way shines. Our heart rejoices when we finally rise above our suffering and dying, and we rise and we have real fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. 
What are some of those opportunities in your lives as we close here today? What are some of those things that you and I need to get hold of and even start talking with God about? Some of the things that maybe you do find hard suffering and dying for. Maybe it's somebody close to you in your own life. Maybe it's in your family or a close friend. And you feel like you're the one who's always holding up the positive side. You're the one always trying to convince them that everything's okay. You're the one who's always trying to show them that it'll all work out. And you feel like they're never giving you any time. This is a pretty lopsided relationship. Well, looking in the rearview mirror, the world back up there in the city of man would say, hey, you know what? Do your best, and then eventually you're going to get tired of it. You've got to take care of number one, okay? You're going to get really tired and not be able to care for yourself anymore. So maybe you just need to push off for a little while. Let that person go. Well, that might be a nice suggestion, but have I first thought, Jesus, how do you want me to go through a J-curve? Maybe I've never really done it. Maybe I've just done the stiff upper lip. I've just been nice and given unconditional positive regard and just listened to this person, and I'm getting tired of just listening. Well, just sitting there and listening, even though it's tiresome and boring, it's not suffering, dying, and rising, is it? We've substituted something, haven't we? We've taken what City of Man has told us, oh, be positive, oh, just listen and be a, a listening ear. That'll be enough for them. Bible doesn't really say that. Bible says you become the image of Jesus Christ to that person. What is it that that person really needs? While you're suffering, pray. While you're suffering, say, God, is there stuff in my life that's in the way with this relationship? God, have I even been praying or have I just been kind of like sour with this whole relationship because I'm tired of it? God, help me to know what it is to connect with you, Jesus, you suffered, died, and you have resurrected with the Father. God, I want something greater for this person and for me. You see, we have to do a lot going on in this J-curve because we've bought into the city of man so much in our quiet ways. So whether it's in your family, whether it's at work, say you have a very impossible work situation. Maybe you have somebody who you collaborate with who is not pulling their weight and you're finding yourself having to waste time and maybe even doing part of their work and you're getting tired of it. Well, if your management has not seen it and all your suggestions and recommendations haven't gotten anywhere, what do you do? Well, you better first go to a J-curve because <laughs> that's what God calls us to. And in that, watch and see what God might do. Children, your parents telling you, no, I'm sorry, I know you spent time talking to your friend and you've got this whole thing organized, and, but this was our time as family. This is what we were going to do, and I told you that already. So you don't have any reason to get mad at me. You're the one that made the decision to talk with your friend and plan that thing. Just have to do another time. What are you going to say? Just take the lumps, just, ugh, family, here we go. All right, whatever, I've got to obey. That's what the Bible says. Children, honor and obey your parents to the Lord. Well, here's an opportunity to do a J-curve. Here's an opportunity to say, okay, God, maybe my parent did not hear me when I was asking time off tonight. I'll just give them the benefit of the doubt. Help me to suffer, die, and rise. And maybe you even feel like a doormat, like this happens all the time. 
Well, what did Jesus think in situations like that? Again, I'm just asking us, brothers and sisters, to think this stuff through. And what we normally trust over in the city of man, stop it and say, looking full on in the ocean of Christ's love, I'm here at the edge, ready to dive in. What is it like to suffer, to die, and then to rise and enjoy the fresh breeze of the city, uh, city of God, of the ocean of love? Well, may God help us to, to profit from that this week, look for opportunities to see the Spirit of God helping us alongside so we can get fellowship with our Savior in this unique way. Well, I trust that these things have been, been a help to you these three weeks. It's been a joy being with you all. And uh, trust that as Pastor Jim and Christian come back with the family, you'll enjoy their, their fellowship a bit more. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Let's hope so, huh? Um, and I will pray that God would make this J-curve something real for you. It's right here in Scripture. It's really all over the Pauline epistles. And our Jesus lived it for us. Uh, well, let's pray as we close.